Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for AML CFT professionals. In this episode of Financial Crime Matters, I talk with Sarah Crow, Director of Polaris' Strategic Initiative for Financial Systems. I hope you enjoy the podcast and will subscribe to the series either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. Well, it is a pleasure to be here with Sarah Crow. Sarah, hello. Hi, Karen. How are you? Good. Good morning. Sarah is the director of Polaris's Strategic Initiative for Financial Systems. Polaris is an incredible organization that ACAMS has long had a history with. Sarah, maybe in just getting started, can you talk a little bit about the work that Polaris does? Sure. So Polaris is a nonprofit that works to end sex and labor trafficking. Our primary geographic focus at this time is North America. So our largest program is that we operate the U.S. National Human Trafficking Hotline, which is a 24-hour support to survivors and victims of trafficking in the United States. And we can connect those individuals with you know, services in their area. So whether it's shelter services or counseling, they're in need of a lawyer, we make those connections. And we also facilitate reports to law enforcement. So that is a big area of our work. But then through that hotline, we're obviously getting a tremendous amount of information about what human trafficking looks like, primarily in the United States. And, and so we're kind of utilizing that information and information from other sources to do longer term systems change, ultimately with the goal of trying to prevent human trafficking. And I think when we last spoke at uh, the ACAMS Vegas conference, the last one that we did face to face, you'd just taken on this title of Strategic Initiatives Director. Talk to me a little bit about what's the basic concept for the strategic initiative with financial institutions. Yeah, so really my goal is, um, and the goal of my team, is to partner with the global financial services industry to address human trafficking at scale. This strategy really comes from a recognition that this industry is kind of uniquely positioned to address human trafficking and have a bigger impact than I think a lot of other sectors might have. And that's because human trafficking is a very complex crime, but it's also inherently a commercial enterprise. These are businesses that need access to legitimate financial systems to operate when they're making money to you know, have a place to store that money, to move that money. And it's a very critical intervention point. Right now, human trafficking is a highly profitable enterprise, and it's traditionally been a very low-risk venture for the traffickers. Um, and we believe working with financial institutions, particularly AML professionals, we can really flip that. So there's a tremendous opportunity here. We're trying to pursue that through collaboration with financial institutions to develop new, nuanced financial typologies. And we're also pursuing opportunities to extend financial access to vulnerable communities, including human trafficking survivors. So there's access and there's intelligence, and maybe we'll come back to access in a minute, but tell me a little bit about things that you can point to that have been accomplished taking on this partnership with financial institutions. Two years ago, we officially set up the Financial Intelligence Unit at Polaris, which is the team I lead, and that's been in partnership with PayPal, who has dedicated you know, a lot of time, expertise, resources 
working with us to develop this concept. And what we're doing is taking information and data from many different sources. Um, we're conducting a lot of open source intelligence, and then we're feeding that information to our financial institution partners that allows them to kind of look into their transactions, into their accounts, figure out where there might be risk areas, and then kind of reporting back what are the patterns they're seeing, again, to build out those typologies further. We're up and running. We have financial institutions that we are regularly sharing intelligence with, and we're facilitating kind of working groups and conversations. I would say a shift and a big accomplishment has been rather than having human trafficking kind of being a discrete project, we are now seeing financial institutions see this as a long-term initiative. And so it's kind of shifted to more kind of ongoing dialogue among a community of people who are really well informed on the subject matter. And that's tremendously helpful. So instead of, you know, kind of starting each meeting from scratch, we have a collective of people who are on the same page and that allows us to keep pushing things forward. So PayPal is a partner, but there's a number of other partners among the financial community, right? Yes, absolutely. I'll name a few, but I'm I'm sure I'll leave somebody out and they come to mind um, that we've been working with quite closely are Capital One, Western Union, City, Wells Fargo, Truist, Scotiabank, Bank of America, Barclays, Standard Charter. So a lot of really large financial institutions that we work with more consistently. And then there have also been a number of regional or community institutions that, you know, we'll have discrete conversations with or, or do trainings for, or have, you know, some level of dialogue as well. So Sarah, I, I think one of the products quote unquote, that you've created in this partnership with financial institutions. Can you tell me a little bit about what that looks like and how I as a financial institution or maybe somebody else would use it to say, hey, this activity that I'm seeing in my financial institution or in my business, that's human trafficking. Yeah. So I would say there's kind of two categories of products. First, we're putting out, you know, reports and issue briefs um, that are kind of talking through typologies and patterns associated with certain business models. And then the second type of product is these open source intelligence packages that my team constructs about entities that, you know, we suspect are involved in potentially human trafficking. And so those packages are shared with some of our financial institution partners. Um, where they are kind of ingesting that information, they're checking their own accounts to see the extent to which they have overlap with any of the entities we've we've mentioned, conducting their investigations, filing uh, SARS as appropriate, escalating to law enforcement as appropriate. And then over time, as they're receiving, you know, packages about maybe similar typologies, they're able to kind of report back those trend level findings to us, which we're then using to inform kind of those issue briefs and a lot of those reports we're putting out. One of the things I think we better touch on, and I know it's certainly been written about a lot and, and others have commented on it, but it's the impact of COVID-19 on human trafficking. And, and I suppose you might think that somehow it would slow the activity, but there's all sorts of new problems that have cropped up. Uh, I know we've talked about child exploitation online in the podcast series. What are we seeing in the era of COVID-19 with regard to human trafficking? Yeah, so we uh, recently did a, a pretty thorough analysis of our hotline data to see what had changed post-COVID. So 
the six months following the outbreak in the United States um, and comparing to other similar time periods. I, I do want to caveat this, that our hotline data is only reflective of who contacts us, so not necessarily prevalence data, but there were some trends that kind of stood out to us. One was definitely an increase in online sexual exploitation, as, as you noted. So we saw a 45% increase in that activity at the same time that reports of other forms of sex trafficking were actually declining. So maybe more traditional kind of prostitution related business models. And what's interesting about that for us is I think there have been a lot of sources that have talked about an increase in online sexual exploitation of children specifically, and that's definitely a factor. But that increase for us, since we don't focus exclusively on minors, impacted both adults and minors. So we were also getting a lot of new reports of adults being forced into webcamming activity or production of pornographic content. So that was quite notable and very much evidence that traffickers adapt to changing environments and, and kind of evolve their practices accordingly. Another thing I, I think I would raise is, you know, on the labor trafficking side, we did see a pretty significant actually decrease in reports of labor trafficking. It was about 20%. However, when we looked into this more and we looked kind of industry by industry, that major drop is actually likely the result of a major decrease in overall economic activity. Um, so we saw major decreases in labor trafficking in the hospitality industry and the restaurant industry. But also those businesses have been hugely impacted by COVID, so they're just not operating. But what we did see was actually increases among some of the industries that continued to operate. We saw increases in um, reports of trafficking among H-2A visa holders. Those are migrant guest workers working in agriculture. That's an industry that has continued to operate, and we saw an increase there. Um, and I do think you know, part of that is increased isolation. I mean, agricultural workers tend to be quite isolated, but during COVID, when we're all fairly isolated, that's increased. And then also a lot of those reports involved issues pertaining to COVID. So a lot of workers reporting that their employers really weren't allowing them to take any kind of COVID precautions. They weren't, you know, enforcing any kind of social distancing. They weren't making people wear masks. And there were a lot of health-related issues as a result of that. The third thing I think I would call out again is this kind of isolation that people are experiencing. I think we probably won't truly understand the extent of COVID and the impact on people for a while. And one of the reasons is there's a lot of people who have been isolated with their abusers and maybe aren't in as regular contact with people that may be able to provide support. And so I am concerned we're not hearing from people as a result of that. You know, one statistic we found that was very troubling, we saw a big decrease in friends and family members contacting us to report someone in their life was in a potential sex trafficking situation. You know, that worries me because a lot of sex trafficking victims have their social media or their devices monitored by their traffickers. Having one-on-one -on -one personal conversations with, you know, your sister or your friend and having them be able to say, hey, you know, I'm worried about you. Are you okay? Is there anything I can do? That's a really powerful opportunity and that may not really be happening over the last year. So that's definitely a, a concern. 
Well, let me also then, uh, speaking of another concern or something that was in the news, let me just ask you a little bit about the two massage spas in Atlanta where there were shootings. Seems to me to, in addition to pointing out misogyny and racism that, that is a theme in our society, to point out the whole complexity of these massage parlors and how they operate. And I know that they're very much on your radar. And I guess I'm referring to, in terms of complexity, sometimes these seem like they're owned by large organized crime organizations. Sometimes they're owned by individuals. Not all the people that work in the spas necessarily engage in sexual services. You know, I know this continues to be something that is on Polaris's radar. Can you put that in perspective, that whole Atlanta situation, to, to the degree it's possible? There's definitely a lot to unpack there, but definitely to make some, you know, unequivocal statements. The vast majority of business owners of Asian descent are not engaged in criminal activity. Um, there are many legitimate massage businesses, including those owned by individuals of Asian descent that are not engaged in criminal activity. And then there are many individuals engaged in commercial sex or prostitution that are not trafficking victims. There are a variety of reasons why someone may be engaged in commercial sex. And many of those may be doing it kind of out of a need to survive. Um, so there's a lot of complexity there. At the same time, sex trafficking very much does exist. And there are a large number of brothels that front as massage businesses that have very high rates of exploitation and trafficking. So not all of the women that are working in illicit massage business are necessarily sex trafficking victims, but many of them are. It's kind of more on a case-by-case -case basis, um, but we do see very high rates of exploitation. I would also say, based on our research, a lot of spas that we have concerns about are owned by individuals that might own a couple of different spas. So they might own, you know, three or four. We haven't seen huge organized crime elements. I mean, they are organized, but the groups tended to be smaller networks, not maybe like massive uh, transnational organized crime networks that, you know, have names that we all know, like the Sinaloa cartel or something like that. These are um, a little bit on the smaller side. This industry is definitely fueled by a lot of racism and misogyny. So Asian women have been hypersexualized and they have been commodified. And that's a bit of a almost a societal norm. And that demand has really fueled this industry. And it's also led to a lot of social responses of, oh, well, you know, that's just kind of normal for them. And there's a lot of questions there of, you know, why do we think Asian women, why do we think sex work is normal for them, but maybe not another population? So there's just a lot of, I think, questions and things that we really need to reflect on. Trafficking victims in illicit massage businesses have tended to be extremely isolated and rarely have opportunities to reach out for help. And so from an outsider's perspective, it can be challenging to figure out what's going on there. I do think a big piece of this is really, you know, the the follow the money theme of if you're looking into the finances of these operations, who is really profiting from this? Because in many of these situations, the women who are providing the sexual services are really not earning any money. Or if they are earning any money, they are so isolated, maybe living within the spa, that they can't actually really spend that money. They're in debt to their employers. So trying to look at who are the ultimate beneficial owners here, who is really profiting from this? 
Also, who are like kind of the professionals that are facilitating this? So who are the professional money launderers? Who are the attorneys involved? There's a network of people that are allowing this very exploitative activity to happen, trying to unpack those relationships and figuring out financial flows and and who ultimately ends up with that money is a huge piece of the work. Let me um, ask you a little bit about the work that you do with survivors. And I know this is part of, uh, you know, Polaris is involved in FAST, which is Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking Initiative, but just the importance of helping survivors of human trafficking get back on their feet with financial accounts and an ability to function in society. Right. So this has been a, a huge area of concern and something that we try to be very intentional about at Polaris is really having survivors and individuals with lived experience um, inform the work that we're doing and drive our strategies and our work. And something that we have heard consistently for years is issues that survivors of trafficking face upon exiting their situations in terms of access to legitimate financial services. So it is you know, very common for traffickers to take over a victim's identity, to open accounts in their name, to run up debts in their name, And when that person exits the situation, you know, that financial history is still linked to their identity, not their traffickers, which causes a lot of problems. Additionally, you know, there are survivors of trafficking who maybe had their documents confiscated as part of their exploitation. They might not have a stable street address, they're couch surfing or living in a shelter. So there's just a lot of challenges that when it comes to opening account, cause issues. And what we found is that there's actually within existing regulations, there's actually a lot that can be done to accommodate these kind of special circumstances, but it's not necessarily the typical process most banks use. And so what we have done um, in coordination with the FAST initiative is um, convene a group of, of banks and also a group of service providers who support survivors to have these banks kind of work with the survivors and, and their case managers to get the accounts open as much as possible. And so this may mean processes that are a little outside of the norm, but are allowed for under regulations. It just maybe takes more documentation than anyone would like in terms of documenting decisions made on the financial institution's part. I'm encouraged by that. Um, there's a lot of accounts that have been opened. I think it's about 2,000 or so worldwide through this program. In the U.S., there are accounts being opened. We've been off to a little bit of a slower start, largely because of the referral process and getting service providers onboarded. But that's encouraging. I think there's still a lot of work to do. A huge issue remains credit repair. You know, traditional banks aren't in control of credit scores. That's really the credit bureaus. There's a lot that needs to be done to figure out ways that survivors who, you know, may have had their identities used for years by their trafficker can repair their credit and address some of those concerns. So that's kind of the next big phase of this work is trying to figure that out. There's also, very sadly, a lot of tax implications that come up for a lot of survivors. So maybe they were forced to file false tax returns. One thing that I think no one thinks about is we work so hard to get restitution to survivors. Right now, restitution at the federal level is actually taxed, which is kind of crazy to think about. There's a bill in Congress right now 
to make that restitution untaxable. So if you're a survivor of trafficking and you receive restitution, you don't have to pay taxes on that restitution. So there's all of these little fixes that we are trying to pursue. I think we're starting to gain traction and momentum in getting this message across. You've touched on where Polaris is going and some of the big priorities, and that is to restore the creditworthiness of survivors and bring them back into the mainstream of life, really. How can financial services professionals help in this? There's multiple factors at play. One, I think on the anti-money laundering side, so much great work has been done. um, And now it's really about scaling that work and having it occur across the industry. There's something that I worry about a little bit is I don't want human trafficking to be a trend among AML professionals. Um, We've gotten so much enthusiasm, but this is really long-term, hard, very challenging work. And so I really hope that AML professionals who have been engaged in this space are able to kind of sustain this over the long term. I know that there's a lot of different priorities that come up, but this is an issue that has existed as long as humankind has existed. And so it's going to be a long-term battle. I've worked at Polaris for 10 years. It kind of feels like 100 years sometimes. So it's definitely a grind. But um, to all of the kind of AML professionals out there, I would say, please keep going. This is a marathon, not a sprint. And it's going to be something that we really need to continue to do for a long time. Beyond that, I would say just to financial services companies generally, you know, there are definitely opportunities for increased financial inclusion and survivors of trafficking um, in particular community that I think it makes a lot of sense to pursue some of those projects. So we've talked about credit repair. You know, can we start thinking about maybe small business loans or issuing credit cards? Can we think about um, financial planning for survivors beyond the basics of having a bank account? You know, what are all of the things that really go into financial security? Can your financial institution help in any of those areas? That is a great encouragement to the listeners out there to stay involved. Uh, There's lots of work to be done, I think, as you pointed out. I just want to thank you for spending this time talking about it. Sarah Crow, Director of Polaris Strategic Initiatives for Financial Systems. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me and for the ongoing support from ACAMS and from all of your members. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Sarah Crow, Director of Polaris' Strategic Initiative or financial systems. I hope you found what you heard informative and will subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you will receive an alert for each new podcast because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.